This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 29 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Index Fund Advisors, IFA.com. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. Today, we have a special show with Bill Reynolds and Greg Simon today. Some of you will be very familiar with the work they do, even if you're not familiar with their names. And on the other hand, some of you will be very familiar with these characters because they've been influencing horses in the Western world for a very long time, but kind of from a media and an art side of the industry. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 15th and the 30th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. It's always a surprise if it's going to be Jen or Glenn. <laughs> Jen or Glenn. It's a flip of a coin. You never know who's going to show up Until on the Until you sky. start giggling. When you start giggling, then we know. <laughs> Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm doing great. It got to be my turn today, and um, this is going to be an interesting conversation because... I found that people who come into horses Mm -hmm. in that they become involved directly with the horse hair, as I say, they get Mm -hmm. horse hair under their fingernails, but they come into it from something besides a working background. In other words, someone who comes into horses because they had horses in their backyard or they took care of horses or they lived in a rural or farming type of community Versus someone like our guests today who are business people and discovered what horses can add to their lives by way of an artistic point of view Mm -hmm. and then discovered the horse hair. It's always interesting for me to listen to those people and talk to those people and learn how their point of view is different. So this, Mm -hmm. I think, is going to be kind of interesting. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. I, I, it's, it is interesting. Somebody who has grown up with horses, you and I, um, we probably take a little bit of it for granted that we love horses or we wouldn't have stayed with them. But we do, you know, just expect that to be a part of our lives and a, a good part of our lives. People who, I mean, it's a bit like fostering, I guess. People who discover horses or always wanted to get into horses it's almost like they're an advocate for the horses because they're like, this is really cool. And you guys should see all these things we could do. And, and they just adopt a lifestyle. And uh, I think it enriches their life in a way that they want to share that. And these two are master sharers of horses and, and the um, art world of horses, the media world of horses. They took their um, excitement about horses and the industry, the peripherals of it, and they kind of went crazy. <laughs> all, they went all different areas of it, and they continue to evolve. And they really shape a lot of what we see on television, on movies, and in art. These two men shape a lot of what we, who might be peripheral to the horse industry, see about the horse industry. And that's why they're pretty darn important. Well, it's, it really is a, a fascinating conversation. So why don't we, uh, let's, let's stop wasting our listeners' time, Debbie. Right. That's right. As much as they right love to, to hear us babble, let's yeah. get to business. <laughs> Their stories will be better than ours. Here we oh, go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Mark Hebner, president of Index Fund Advisors and proud owner of Monty Roberts Willing Partners graduate, 
He's a sugar bear. <laughs> you know, investment portfolios are a lot like horses. You need to find one that best suits you, your temperament, and your stage of life. Some people might like an energetic horse and an aggressive investment portfolio, while others are more comfortable with a gentle ride and a more conservative investment portfolio. The trick is to find the one that's right for you. That's what Index Fund Advisors is all about, matching people with portfolios, risk-appropriate, low-cost, and globally diversified investment portfolios. You can find the right portfolio for you by taking the Risk Capacity Survey at ifa.com, that's IFA as an index fund advisors, or you can call us toll-free at 888-643-3133. That's 888-643-3133. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're really excited today to have some icons in, in the horse industry, and they would kind of, I can see one corner of their mouth go up with a little smile on that, because a lot of people may or may not know these individuals, but I'm very excited to introduce today Bill Reynolds and Greg Simon, very um, California-based, Western, uh, decidedly Western feel today. With a master's in fine arts, William C. Reynolds started out as the art director for A&M Records, working in a wide variety of world-famous acts like Pink Floyd, The Police, and Tanya Tucker, believe it or not, working with customers like um, the likes of Resistol Hats, Stetson Hats, Montana Silversmiths, uh, Warner Western Records, Professionals Choice, the Autry National Center, made Bill realize that the Western industry's reach could be so much greater, and he continues to work toward that even today. Bill has uh, been involved in amazing projects, too numerous to mention here, as they say, but a few that you might recognize are The Horse Whisperer, the movie produced by Robert Redford, Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses, beautiful movie, The Faraway Horses with Buck Brannaman, The Cowboy Hat Book, The Art of the Western Saddle, beautiful book, that was named Equine Book of the Year, and Believe, A Horseman's Journey. In the early 80s, Bill was also involved in establishing and building the Malibu Equestrian Center. After semi-retiring in 1990 from an all-consuming business career, Greg Simon channeled his energy to a diverse array of equestrian interests, from trail riding and team roping to breeding performance quarter horses. And to date, he and his wife, Sandy, their horses have accumulated seven world's championships. Greg also assists at the Kentucky Horse Park with the Western Horse Competitions at that park. And he's on the executive committee of the National Cowboy Western Heritage Museum. It's beautiful. In Oklahoma City. And he's the chairman of the famous Preta West Art Show and Exhibition, the oldest and largest Western contemporary art show in the United States. Hi, Bill and Greg. How are you? Bill Reynolds here. And Greg has to say hi also. Bill, um, what took you from A&M Records into the Western Journey, besides your work? There must have been a pull there. I certainly have, had grown up uh, with, the, with the American West and the Western uh, front and center in my life. Uh, my father was in the television business and, and was in charge of uh, content for CBS during the 60s. Mm -hmm. And we constantly had television sets on 
with shows like Rawhide and Have Gun Will Travel and Gunsmoke, and it was a, an immediate attraction because he'd always kind of look at me and say, what do you think of that, kid? What do you think of that? <laughs> so it was something that uh, not only from a media perspective, but my grandfather in Tucson had a horse ranch and was uh, the proprietor of a guest ranch for many, many years. So it was always the horses and the West were always somewhere in my life. Yeah, yeah. So but during the during the time at the record company, uh, we were constantly uh, at the A and M lot in Hollywood. There was always something going on, and there was because uh, there were still Western films being made uh, during the late seventies that were mm-hmm. uh, lots of soundtracks were being done there as well. So uh, when the record industry started to con- constrict a little bit in, in mm-hmm. the early 80s, I went to a, uh, an ad agency, and, and their interest was a uh, new client. So the na- it was a natural progression for me to then go out into the Western industry, which I felt was being underrepresented. Mm. Uh, it's principally a, a company-based uh, media placement universe, and mm-hmm. uh, we brought in many, many co- uh, contacts and clients that were manufacturers, galleries, museums that really had not been represented up to that point. Mm-hmm. So it did start to create a little more of a sophisticated look uh, for many of these companies. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So I'd like to bring Greg into this a little bit, too, because that same background will, I think, feed into the rest of our conversation. And I, what I love about Greg is that he worked really hard in the corporate world and I think he, he worked to wear out his suit and tie so that he could trade him in for jeans and some good boots. And, and he's been influencing the breeding world uh, ever since, kind of in a roundabout way. So after retiring in 1990 from that career, Greg Simon was able to devote his time and energy to your equestrian interests, trail riding and team roping. And uh, you turned your attention to acquiring and breeding performance quarter horses for competition within the American Quarter Horse Association. That'll become big in your career. He completed. He competed as an amateur in uh, team roping and then increased your number of home, homebred horses trained and exhibited by professional trainers across the West and Midwest. You're a big name in the AQHA. And Greg's wife, Sandy, and he bred at the ranch in the San Inez Valley, where Bill also resides, and then sent them to a series of different trainers to ready them for a full AQHA competition. Your focus evolved from team roping to reining and working cow horse, and for one horse, even jumping. So to date, you've ac- accumulated seven world's championships, which is unheard of and quite an accomplishment. Greg is representative on behalf of the Kentucky Horse Park, with a primary focus on the Western horse breeds and their competition at the park. And he's a board member and on the executive committee of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City and enjoys the position of chairman of the Pre-to-West Art Show and Exhibition. You should Google that. It's amazing. It's the oldest and largest Western contemporary art show in the United States. Welcome, Greg Simon. Well, thank you very much, Debbie. Well, thank you for being here. I'm, I'm really excited that um, we, ha- we had a little conversation, Bill, Greg, and I, about where the, the horsemanship world is going and their influence on it and um, their vision for some of the areas that they they influence. And what I wanted to ask you first, Greg, is 
why does why does the West hold such a fascination for so many non-Westerners like you that were? Oh my gosh, we we are finding this. This is probably the sixty-four dollar question right now, mm. um, and. and yeah, don't find it through the horses as much as we find it through the art and through the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are finding that when we reach out to Europeans, to the people in the East Coast, uh, to the Orient, that, that people are raising their hands and coming forward and asking to be involved and included in the Western lifestyle. Um, in fact, I could point directly to Bill's... Uh, activities at Cowboys and Indians, and now with uh, Ranch and Riata magazine, mm-hmm. being very, you can track the pathway of the individuals who've decided to come and be part of the Western world. And it's the evolution of the dress, the jewelry, the paraphernalia, <laughs> uh, the accoutrements that one thinks they need to have as as they enter, but as they get further into the pipeline of the Western lifestyle, they give up a lot of those and they down-tune to what the rest of us regularly wear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I I do have to make a correction. I'm not a big name in the AQHA. We've had our fun. We've made our mark. It was (laughs) what it was when it was. You're right. Your horses are the big name. That's all right. (laughs) That's that's right. (laughs) Well, we're we're proud of them. We're, we're proud that you've uh, decided to put your time and energy behind a breeding program like that, too, because that's what drives the industry forward. But I, I think what you're saying, too, is that the um, there's a, a Western culture, there's a, um, a feeling uh, that not only has Bill captured in a lot of your, not only media, but the book, I mean, not just magazines, but books and and, uh, and and board memberships, too, like Edward Boreen, that famous artist, and many of the things that you've done with the Western Saddle. Um, Bill, what areas of the Cowboy West culture do you see gaining traction in, in today? What, what's influencing people out there? I think there is a, and Greg is correct, there is a, a tremendous growth uh, internationally, and certainly the Internet has, has helped that. Yeah. But it is the fact that uh, museums like the Cowboy Hall of Fame and others within the country, and they are fairly recent phenomena, after really none prior to the Second World War. Uh, and what it does is it creates a, a sort of a capsule look at a culture. Mm-hmm. And the magazines and the movies uh, have always been sort of a, a, an attractive mystery Mm. both internationally and here. And part of what we, we see today is that it is a much more inclusive culture. We want everybody to wear the jersey. Mm, uh, nice. The idea is that you don't have to be head to, head to toe. You don't have to walk like Slim Pickens. <laughs> that may date me a little bit. but I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is truly a root-based culture in America. And there, it is a, a value-based culture where your handshake is your bond. It is very attractive in this, in this closer, closer, shrinking world that we are living in. And so the ability for people is to take a little bit of that, take it into their culture. But what is interesting that's happening is that more and more people are embracing 
the horse into that culture as well. It's not just about the trappings of it. It is truly about the idea that, well, maybe they can throw a leg over something. Maybe they can, in the case of the cowboy world, maybe they can try reining. Maybe they can mm-hmm. move some cattle around. Or maybe it's just pleasure riding. But the idea of embarking at that level is increasing uh, internationally. And that's very encouraging that people view this as a living culture and not something that is uh, being replaced by wheeled vehicles. That's nice. Yeah, that's wonderful and hopeful. I like that, too, because uh, we've got to make all these aspects that we love about the Western culture relevant in the next uh, generation, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's critical that we do not treat this life as something yucks and shucks. No. Uh, the, 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 we'll call it the civilian press. Whenever there's something written about a cowboy or something in the West, generally there's a yippee-i-a somewhere yeah. in the headline. <laughs> yeah. And it's, not, it's nice that, that the term is having a little bit more of respect. It's not someone that is also used in the civilian press as someone that shoots from the hip or as someone that's a, a maverick or a renegade. The idea here is that this is a bona fide way of life for many, many people. And the horse has such a great importance in that, in that place that it's, it's gratifying to see that uh, our readers and, and certainly visitors that come to, the, to museums uh, are coming from all over the world. And that says that there is a great attraction here in the United States for something that is very original and very root-based here. Mm-hmm, that is, um, and and Greg, I'll ask you a little something. I'm I'm envisioning what your metamorphosis was like going through from, um, you know, getting a horse or two and and getting a rope out and and honing your skills on that, all the way to an AQHA World Circuit. That's quite a journey. What? What did you learn along that way? That's a pretty broad question. But what did what would you do differently if you if you started all over again? I, I what, don't know that I, I I would do it differently per se. There are okay. things that maybe now that I know of, oh, what events attract me more or I admire more that mm-hmm. I might I might have had uh, horses concentrate more on. But honestly, and you said it correctly, it's a metamorphosis. It's mm-hmm. it's a um, uh, a newborn coming into a world that very much want to be in, which is with horses. And as you're with your horse, you begin to see that there's an opportunity to do something that with your horse by partnering up and competing. Mm-hmm. And if it's just uh, not team roping, but if it's uh, uh, one of the very easy events, uh, you, you decide that this is what you want to do, and you get out. And I, I've got to encourage people, anybody who's listening, who has not, as we say, gone down the road, and the road may only be a mile long or it might be across the country, go do it. The experience of the people that you're going to meet that travel on the uh, competition circuit are going to give you a heck uh, of an education very quickly. And you're going to find it to be very positive, as I did, that there are so many people that are, will start rooting for you because mm-hmm. even though you're competing with them, they want to see you and your horse do better and better. And um, I can tell you that the relationships, 
the quality and the character of the people that I have met across the country in competitive situations are like none else that you um, you would probably meet. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and I think Bill said something a, a while back about the culture and the people that you meet as well. And it really resonated with me about their value system, that there was physiologically almost a difference in people that work with horses than, uh, you know, the people you meet in the grocery store that don't work with horses. But um, tell us a little bit about that, Bill. Tell us what you saw in um, Buck Branham and, and and people that you know have worked with horses all their lives. What what made them different? I think it's a, it's a desire for a quality relationship, whether it's with a horse or with another human being. I think the the more visual of this for more people started when the clinician group, uh, which included the Dorrance, Tom and Bill Dorrance and Ray Hunt and mm-hmm. so many today, uh, because it was a uh, it was a slow as fast approach to working with horses and and Ray Hunt, who I think it has to be thirty five years ago, there was an article about him in Time Magazine, which really was a, a a moment, uh, a line in the sand moment, if you were, where people said, "Well, who is this guy?" Mm-hmm. And it's over the over the years. It, it and Buck was one of Ray's uh, we'll proteges disciple yeah. or something. Okay, yeah. and protege. You know, you you look at it that the Dorrance people, who the Dorrance brothers, mm-hmm. uh, and then Ray Hunt and people like Buck, and it's sort of the. Uh, you know, it's a, a lineage that's like Yoda, Obi Wan, and Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I guess, I but there is so. a. Uh, it evolves today, where there are a lot of new people who are coming into this, and it's all for the benefit of the horse. But what happens when you give yourself to this activity? And I know Greg has experienced this with his great success in the, with horses. Is you have to be, you have to put yourself. You got to put your watch away, and you have to allow yourself to wish to have this kind of an understanding relationship where the two of you work together. Yes. And no matter what discipline you're doing, uh, it benefits you, the horse, and then when the, you, you put the horse up and you, you go back to your life or go to, go to town, the smart ones bring this approach to their relationship with other people, their bosses, their wives, their kids, and it suddenly what happens is you have a bunch of really effective human be- human beings yeah. who are sensitive to other human beings and it's a that is probably one of the greatest things that's come from this uh, slow is fast movement this vaquero approach if we can call it that mm-hmm. uh to horsemanship is that mm-hmm. time is not an enemy time is a friend you know Debbie we were Bill and I were kicking around the other day of how do you measure up uh, uh, somebody, especially when you see them with their horse? And we both agreed that what, what we look at is that when somebody gets off their horse, the very first thing and the only thing they do is take care of that horse and make mm-hmm. sure that that horse is comforted, safe, and secure. And that, that, that's the person that I'm going to want to get next to at the campfire and talk mm-hmm. to because that person has the qualities and the focus and uh, the interest that I share. Beautifully said. I agree with you. There is something different about 
that campfire moment too, when you know that you've all tucked in and uh, your horses are fed and you can now feed and, uh, and you've got good friends around you that appreciated that horse all day long. Um, that's our, our mountaintop experiences, but uh, that's how you find those people you want to go on that mountaintop with, isn't it? It's true. I think, I, I think it's a, a desire. I mean, once you have that feeling, it's a very gratifying feeling, feeling as, a, as, a, as a person to suddenly have an attraction and an understanding with other people around you who are caring about larger things mm-hmm. than ego or uh, uh, who, who's, who's tougher than who, because mm-hmm. the, the, initial, uh, the initial introduction is via the horse, and right. it's a wonderfully equalizing experience. Yeah, that's great. So there are a lot of those people in the San Inez Valley where you both live. So now I'm going to do a bit of a travelogue here, but why is that? Why, why is the San Inez Valley so unique that way? Well, Either it, one of it, you. Well, well, it geographically, first of all, enjoys what I, I, th- I would call Camelot weather. Oh. So far <laughs> as, as we are in between two mountain ranges just off the coast of uh, of California here, above Santa Barbara. There are 22,000 residents in uh, the San Inez Valley. And within this valley, there is a champion of every breed and every discipline. Isn't that amazing? It is. It it is so amazing. (laughs) And, And the number of people who compete in all of the different venues and activities um, uh, are very impressive. Mm-hmm. But what is more impressive is that we are all social friends, even though we compete in very mm-hmm. far and distinctly different venues, whether it be jumping, whether it be polo, uh, dressage, um, uh, team roping. Um, Bill, give me a help here. We started in this valley <laughs> the... Uh, um, well, cattle. we have a. Well, we have. You know, this is the. This is really uh, kind of ground zero for the vaquero culture in yeah. California. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a. This is a place where there were so many Mexican land grant ranches that went from here up to through the Carmel Valley, mm-hmm. and this has a history and a legacy of this kind of ho- of the bridal horse culture, mm-hmm. and the Renaissance that it has experienced. Uh, over the last 25 years has caused people to dig deeper into that history, into that legacy, and to understand it. And so that it, that's attracted people of similar mindsets here. Mm-hmm. And so it, this is a, it's a, a very magic place. I can't say anything other than it's, a, it's an absolute magic place that when people come to visit, and there's not a lot, it's, it, there's not a whole lot of towns or buildings or anything, but there is a sense of being surrounded in this valley by these gorgeous oak trees and grassy hills that turn brown in the summer, really brown this summer, but (laughs) do turn brown. And as, you know, I'll quote Ian Tyson when he, in one of his songs, that when he saw these hills and the blue sky and these oak trees, it was the land of buckskin and blue. Ooh, and that nice. really described the color and the feel yeah. of what the San Inez Valley had. 
Ooh, that's nice. He is a writer, isn't he, Craig? That's really oh, good. Oh, he's a poet. He's a poet. He's a poet. Embarrasses me. <laughs> but there's a lot of artists in the valley too. You're right. I'm thinking Ivan Earle, who did those beautiful dots of oak trees on on canvas, and, and uh, uh, so many people. Well, I mean, the Edward Boreen going back to the to the, well, to the it, it, etchings. And, mm-hmm. My experience is that the beautiful areas uh, attract probably some of the strongest artistic talent. Yeah. Um, they're they're just no different than. Uh, and people who want to congregate and be together for the same reason that, that we horsemen mm-hmm. uh, fi- find ourselves attracted to be in the same area. Mm-hmm. So to take a little left turn here, but natural horsemanship, which uh, I don't like that. It, it doesn't fit with horses, actually, because we're predators and they're flight animals. So it never really made sense to be. But let's call it that for this moment. Why do you think natural horsemanship, which was a move away from the rowel spur look and the, you know, the horse, the, and now I'm thinking artists, with the, the horse's mouth wide open and he's being wrestled around the cattle and, you know, what, what the typical maybe New York citizen thinks of the wild, wild west. You know, I've got this picture of rough and tough and uh, buck them out why does natural horsemanship come out of the West with the Dorrance brothers and, uh, you know, that whole movement? You don't get hurt. Ah, <laughs> no, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, there's a certain sense of this that when, when, you, when you see somebody who's t- got a horse tied to a snubbing poster, you've got mm-hmm. somebody trying to sack one out, it'll leave a mark on you when you hit. And the, the beauty of how the Dorrances and ultimately Ray Hunt and other, and, and certainly in the dressage world, this was this had been utilized in other places as well. Mm-hmm. But the why get into a fight when you can attempt to create understanding and make it each other's idea? I mean, this is the idea of treating the horse as a thinking entity beyond the fear flight aspect. Right. That they they would like to be respected. They appreciate work. And they appreciate comfort and friendship. Mm-hmm. And really, when you think about it, it's an incredibly logical approach, really, to almost any living thing, mm-hmm. if one respects that. And I'm, you know, Greg, I know his, with all the horses he's been around, and all the horses he's had trained. I mean, I'm sure he has experienced this as well. Oh, we 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 call it having broken an egg in a horse. When you see that happen through this type of uh, uh, just unsatisfactory training that has is, is no basis today at all in in our culture. And when you're looking for the the duration and the durability of a horse that you've put the kind of money in, there's just no way in the world that you could allow a trainer or anybody to utilize the tactics and the techniques that were so emboldened in uh, O. Charlie Russell's paintings and mm-hmm. whatnot. We, we, we just don't, we don't see that anymore. Now, if you see it, <laughs> you stay away from it, mm-hmm. uh, and you confront it so that you can stop it. It is pretty interesting when you see, when you go back and you look at, at what we'll call the, the classic representation. Most, mm-hmm. and you look at Remington, you look at Russell, you look at uh, even Ed Boreen. These horses were, you know, there was gapping, these, these mouths wide open, mm-hmm. 
and it's a it's dramatic, I suppose, mm-hmm. and certainly for many of the uh, customers and the patrons that these folks had, and many of them were from areas where they just didn't know, they didn't understand, and so it looks wow. uh, very classical in mm-hmm. this 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 battle between human and horse, mm-hmm. and but today, and you look at certainly some of the paintings that that most of the paintings being done today, certainly by the Calaveras of America or examples at, at the, the pre de show or the, uh, the holdings in the museums, mm-hmm. there's a much deeper understanding of horsemanship that That's contemporary true. artists are showing. And people will call you on it. If, just as Greg said, if, if you start to see, it, it, really it's almost abuse. It has to be looked at that way at some level. Ignorance equaling abuse. Mm-hmm. And we'll, the, the painting won't sell or the, the, the writer will be ignored because there is this awareness of what we'll call it natural horsemanship is today and that it, frankly, is a better way. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've experienced this on the circuit where you have a newbie trainer who's going to come in and show the world and his technique, his, the way he conducts himself, is really injurious to the horse and to the other competitors. And um, the AQHA will pull you right out of the, uh, is that right? the circuit, right out of the, right out of the arena uh, these days. And mm-hmm. obviously you're going to be shunned uh, by the rest of the competitors. So it's, good. it's yeah, a way I... to start and stop your career real quickly here. Okay, good. <laughs> I love that I'm hearing words uh, in judge, coming from judges now like harmony and uh, in just how the horse and rider work together. Uh, and what, Greg, what, what is, what for horse owners seeking to have their horses trained, what's your advice these days? Well, honestly, we all have expectations of a young horse and our dreams of where we think they, they can go and what they can do and accomplish and obviously we seek out a trainer, either as close by as possible or a very famous trainer who may be further away. Um, and we have an expectation that getting that horse to that trainer and given the proper time, that horse is going to be, quote, of the quality that will contend for a world championship. Well, the best trainers of the world are the ones that will tell you within as short as time as possible that you should take this horse back. This horse is not meant for uh, that level of competition. Uh-huh. The horse is better suited for X, Y, Z. And mm-hmm. then the next best trainer is the trainer that can take the horse and make the horse to be as sound and as good a partner as possible with you. And that's where you're going to have to be obviously come in strongly because a trainer can only give a horse so many signals and it's you, the partner, that's going to have to finish out the uh, the menu of what it needs to build that partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that your take too, Bill? I think so. I think it's a yeah. it it is a much broader awareness that we find when people come into the if they are suddenly the passion overtakes them, you know, and they it, 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 they want to get involved in it. It's a very logical approach you know very few people say well gee don't i need to don't i need to beat him into submission you just don't hear that 
And I think what is what's taken place is culturally, this is there's been a change and a very positive change, so that uh, all of this is just simply simply put, very good for the horse. Yeah, yeah, good. I, I know that Bill, you and I have talked about how the culture is evolving with horse owners too, that they've become a little bit more empowered since the 90s, let's call it, where a lot of the, the uh, um, natural horsemanship started to, to take hold. And the, um, the evolution that you're seeing now in this uh, range-to-table food production mm-hmm. and, and people using horses instead of tractors now, we're kind of doing some of the... The turnaround in, in and I love it because it advocates for for horses being in our lives. But uh, uh, tell us a I little think, bit about what you and I talked about. I think we're seeing a, a obviously the we'll call them the foodies, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the growing local and and eating local, which mm-hmm. has gained tremendous popularity. And a lot of that is because of the the chemically adjusted things that are taking place in in agriculture. And there's a pushback to that. Yeah, but there also is a you know everything is is cyclical and there the circles kind of coming around again, and there has been in the last ten years a realization of the value of somewhat of the we'll call all all of us old hippies the back to the land approach to some degree, <laughs> where okay. people are seeing the value in small plots or small areas of using horsepower literally horsepower to work the land. And there is a, a tremendous resurgence of interest in that. There are wheelwrights. There are people making harness uh, in, in, that you can buy on your iPad. So uh, there's a w- lovely <laughs> contradiction there. But what it says is, is that people are taking more control over how we feed the nation, how we feed ourselves, and the uh, growth of farmers markets around the country is is a great testament to that is that okay does it sound like um we're putting horses back to work and that people who uh, appreciate the horses say what you know that'd be like telling your kids that uh, they can't go to college now they have to you know labor in the fields is a better way to go well a a very smart man yvonne chenard who has a little company called patagonia Mm-hmm. has always advocated, he's got a couple of very good books, which I highly recommend, and one of them is called Let My People Go Surfing. And his his building is in Ventura, California, which is right, right. on the coast. But he advocates, no matter what you do, always understand that there is value in doing something with your hands. Mm. We, are, we are growing a culture that is really good at keyboarding. But mm-hmm. the question is, can you get out there and do something for yourself? I do not feel suddenly society is going to turn to this agrarian-only society. But yeah. <laughs> the awareness of it is, I think, valuable to being, just as you're working with a horse to trying to be have an effective relationship with that horse, the, bro- the broader you can be an effective human being and how you take care of yourself, your community, and your nation makes you that much more of an, uh, an effective part of the citizenry. And that's that's really what I think that's about, people taking control of their own lives. That's great. I you agree. You and I have a, have a common friend, Bill, that you may not be aware, his ranch right next to me, he is now plowing his own fields with, yeah. his, uh, with his team, 
and uh, growing, uh, you know, his his own product. Um, I am so impressed with with uh, this approach that he's doing right now, and of course, the the teams that he he has two teams, and those teams are doing so much better than just hauling a wagon up and down the road yeah. every other weekend. Yeah, that's it. And and uh, some people might joke that that he's just trying to save gas, but they probably don't know the price of hay these days. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> no, I, I think it has to be the sense of satisfaction. It rounds out exactly. very much. It makes him much more of a happy guy. I, I can't tell you how satisfied he is by showing me his plowed field. Oh, that is awesome. And I think horses, uh, and our, our producers have, uh, they drive horses and everything too. We talk about another level of gentle when horses uh, work together as a team like that too. Mm-hmm. So uh, for their minds, um, pulling wagons, I mean, even if you're opposed to them having to work so hard to break a sweat, but just think about the teammanship and the harmony between the the human the driver and and the horses too i think it's it's great training for almost any horse that's well you, you uh, talk about breaking sweat look all of us humans work to break sweat to <laughs> achieve whether it's weight reduction or uh, better health of yeah. muscles and all that so there's yeah. nothing wrong with breaking sweat that's right. Very good. We talk about it. But, um, I, I, I keep threatening my husband that he should uh, have electricity generated by a bicycle if he's going to watch all those football games this time of year, you know? <laughs> it would do him a lot of good, right? Well, I, I, I couldn't go through this conversation without talking about um, the movies and the media and where it's going with horses in that because I have the two of you on this phone call. So I would love to hear about some of the contemporary movies that may be coming out, you have some insight on, um, like the Tommy Lee Jones uh, bill that oh. you and I talked about. Is yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, the actor, coming out with a new uh, film called the, the Homesman. Tell us a little bit about the future of Western film, both of you. Bill first. Well, I think the, uh, the nature of the Western film changed dramatically, like most things did uh, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And the ability to make the old, what they used to call odors, O-A-T-E-R-S, the two real films that, that were shoot 'em up and Black Hat and White Hat, uh, went away at that point. Uh, probably the, if there was a linchpin film that was done in 1960, it would probably be The Misfits, mm-hmm. with Clark Gable yeah. and Marilyn Monroe. Right. But from that point on, the Western kind of went into a darker period. Um, and has risen probably 1988-89 with Lonesome Dove, which was really the high point of where we saw great books becoming Westerns. Uh, And most people who you would associate with Western film today, and, you know, the two most obvious are Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. Yeah. Both of them would make a Western tomorrow if the writing was there, if it's all about the script. And frankly, there's just not a whole lot of people who are writing contemporary pieces mm-hmm. that are geographic as well as uh, genre-based. The Holmesman uh, that Tommy Lee Jones is producing with Hilary Swank in it mm-hmm. um, is, a, is an, an older book, just as uh, Lonesome Dove was. Oh. And so there is a reach back to literature 
to find the kinds of stories. Like a good example of a remake that was very successful, which was Monty Walsh, which was originally starred Lee Marvin in the 60s, and then back in the 90s, Tom Selleck did the remake <laughs> with Simon Winsor, who had done The Man from Snowy River and among oh, others. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the, the future of the Western is there, it, but it has to relate con- to the contemporary culture to some degree, unless you're going to do a historical piece, which is effectively what the Holmesman is. Mm-hmm. And it's a great story about this fellow who's been brought in to take these women back east because they came out west to be pioneers. The men left, and the women couldn't couldn't take it anymore, and they had to work together to be taken back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... It's an interesting story, and it it shows very strong character and personality. And I would have I would equate uh, Hillary Swank's character somewhat to Ripley, uh, Sigourney Weaver's character mm-hmm. in Alien. It's okay. where a, uh, an outstanding person, male or female, takes charge. Mm-hmm. So that's great writing, but it's an older book. So the Western can exist. You know, Longmount's a good example. Uh, Longmire, excuse me. Uh, there's, to some degree, The Walking Dead is a Western. Uh, so it's it's a question of, A, how you define it, and okay. B, what you're trying to really achieve with it. So, uh, But the culture is there, and just as there is a tremendous culture in contemporary Western art. Uh, right. It's a, it, this is a living... Uh, the Cowboy Arts of America, and on the on the gear side, uh, the group that uh, traditional Cowboy, Cowboy Arts. Arts Association mm-hmm. that are creating some of the most incredibly beautiful using gear available. And Greg can now, speak to that because they just had the big show. Oh, we just finished that three weeks ago. Um, an incredibly successful uh, sales program for the traditional cowboy artists. They sold out 100 percent on the first night and uh, all I can do is recommend that anybody who wants to understand and get a glimpse or a feel for the finest headgear, leather, silver, anything that is attached and a part of the equestrian world needs to go to the nationalcowboymuseum.org and then on the front page tap on to uh, the catalog for the traditional uh, Cowboy Artists Association. Now, I can't speak to the movies as Bill can because I eat too much popcorn when I'm in there. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I would think, Bill, that a discussion with Debbie would have with the, um, uh, the, the uh, Western Heritage Award people mm-hmm. out of the museum would mm-hmm. be so enlightening as to the challenges uh, and opportunities they're seeing in the world of books, music, film. Each year, the National Cowboy Museum puts on what is basically the Academy Awards for the Western world. And uh, you, you can speak to that, Bill, because you've been involved in that. It's a, it really is an incredible uh, bringing together of the cultural talent of people who really do love the West. And this is writers, this is singer-songwriters, this is poets, this is short story people. 
teleplay writers for television, short film, uh, feature-length film, documentary. It is the best of the best. And the coveted, the Little Western Heritage Award of this little man on horseback is as coveted in this genre as that little golden Oscar is. That Oscar the, guy. <laughs> yeah, that funny little Oscar guy or that Grammy, you know, that little that yeah. little uh, record player. Yeah. <laughs> and it is something that each year you wonder, what's going on? Well, it always delivers because the, the, the committee that puts all this together digs so deep into the culture and then is so celebratory of the winners that it creates kind of a, a, a prop wash that brings more people into the game because there is, a, there is still tremendous recognition for that level of talent in all of the various media. And it's uh, very, very exciting uh, and, and, to, to be there and witness it. An uh, additional bonus would be, Debbie, that a uh, good friend of both Bill's and mine chairs that committee, and his name is Wyatt McCray, mm-hmm. okay. uh, grandson to Joel. Ah, oh, lovely. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's, it's a... Uh, we haven't run out. Let's put it this way. Yeah, that's you know, we right, talk right. about the the Western film and we talk about Western art. We're not running out of talent. The talent is there, and frankly, the audience is there. It is. It's and just the a question of getting, and the stories are there. It's just yeah. getting it all lined up, and whether or not we need uh, there's room in between all these tentpole uh, film projects that in, that are, you know, right now the comic book hero mm-hmm. is sucking all the air out of the room, frankly. Right, exactly. <laughs> At some level. <laughs> so so the question is, can can we auger in a little bit somewhere in between there and put together, and I think what Tommy Lee Jones has done is a tremendous, it's a tremendous film. And uh, he is spectacular in it, as is Hilary Swank. And I highly recommend people see it. But it says that you can make these things and that they will have broad release and they'll get watched. And, and that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. That is. Well, you just gained one more fan today. There, there we go. Are. Got my producer, Jen. <laughs> She's in. I, I, had seen, I had seen reference to that film that Tommy Lee Jones is doing because it had Tommy Lee Jones. Um, and I said, okay, that looks interesting. But now that you guys have talked about it, and I know a little bit of the backstory of where the, the storyline came from, mm-hmm. now I am genuinely intrigued, and I have to go look at that again. So you've gained one more fan. I think one thing that always comes up is that you talk to even, you know, the, the young stars of today, like, you know, the Channing Tatums of today. Right. They all want to be in a Western. They all want to get on a horse. Is that right? That's awesome. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a magic thing. To be able, for me in my career, to have been able to play cowboys and Indians my whole life yeah. has been truly a, a magic experience for me. And it never loses. And I know Greg will agree with this. No matter how you feel, no matter what you've been through, you step on your horse, everything changes mm. for the better. The view of the world is so different six feet up. Mm. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts. And I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it too on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. Watch world's champions give their lessons. 
join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse too. This episode's trainer's tip is from Elizabeth Tierney, hailing from Sun Valley, Idaho. And she has some great tips for those of us who love packing in the mountains. Welcome back, Elizabeth Tierney. She's agreed to come back and give us a, a professional tip from all the years of experience. And she does a lot of mountain packing, a lot of mountain riding from her place, Busterback Ranch in Sun Valley, Idaho. Hi, Elizabeth. <laughs> Hi, hi. Well, I will tell you, this is all from personal experience. I'm, I'm not an expert, but if you ride in the mountains, you have to cross water. And sometimes it's big water, and sometimes it's white water, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's little dark water. And yeah. I have found that, that the most difficult water to get a horse to cross is the small dark water. And I think it's just the, the perspective that they see. It's kind of like uh, people having eyes where their ears are, (laughs) and they look at something that's dark and Mm -hmm. maybe moving or not moving, and it looks like, I'm I'm assuming it looks like they're just going to fall into a deep, dark hole, (laughs) and the tendency for so many horses is to try, first to avoid it, to spin and avoid it, or else to try to jump it, and neither one is good, and (laughs) it takes a great deal of patience. Um, and every horse is different, and some just fear it forever almost, yeah. and others just say, oh, that's nothing, and go right through it. And But I have found even those horses that say that's nothing and go right through it, every once in a while, mm-hmm. uh, they react differently. Yeah. And I've also found that some of the horses that, that don't like the small water will just get in the river and take you across the river or even swim. Yeah. With the rider on his back. <laughs> How fun. Yeah, it is fun. It's a great deal of fun. It's, um, it can be dangerous. You need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but it's... So how do you get those horses ready for that? I mean, you, you do you work all winter? I know you go up to Busterback in Sun Valley, Idaho in the summer. Do you work uh-huh. during the winter to get... Yeah, well, I try to because it's, there's not much water where I live in California. Anytime mm. there's a rainstorm, I'm just taking the horses through all the puddles and the mud okay. puddles and yeah. over the water and trying to create some of those mud puddles, you know, with a hose even. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> and, okay. and I found that really works. It works well, actually, because water's water. Yeah. And, um, you know, the sound of water is one thing. In the mountains, you have the rushing streams, and even though they could walk right through them, sometimes just the sound of that rushing water will put a horse off. Right. And um, other times, it's the mud puddle. Um, and do you use do you use plastic, or, or is that not they they can smell water, so maybe that's yeah. not a fault. I don't point. use plastic. I know a lot of people put out the blue tarps, and they they say it simulates water, and you know it, maybe it does, but I know that's not water, and if I know it's not water, yeah. <laughs> the horse knows it's not water. Probably not water, yeah. 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 So, so it's you, you simulate water by building puddles or something like that. Yeah, and if it, I just get the hose out, you know, yeah, and, that makes and sense. try to um, get some water going. And actually, horses, once they're in water, they love it. Yeah. They love to play in water. They love to drink. And the only way you can drink when you trail ride in the mountains is to find some water. That's right. So that's one thing that's going for you to begin with, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you have to go down an embankment to get to that water mm-hmm. and it's rushing and making um, a big noise, then the horse has some fear. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you need to learn to work through. Find a find a gentler place to enter the water if you can. Right. And mm-hmm. then um, take them through the water and then come out on the steeper embankment. Mm-hmm. Because somehow coming out where they have to lift themselves up is a little less frightening to a horse than going down. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that help. And we'll check back with you after the summer and see if you've learned anything else this year that you can share with us. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. In December, he will hold his Monty special training in both English and Portuguese. The horses are speaking the Portuguese. No. December 1 (laughs) through 5, and then December 12 through 14, we have another horse sense and healing for stress injuries in our service personnel and first responders. Then we jump to March, and Monty's in the USA. He's in Arizona, and we'll have the links in our uh, notes for the show. And now we've just added some dates to England. In March, March 24, 26, and 28, he'll be in Kent, Essex, and Somerset, England. Does Monty Roberts' passport look like a dictionary because it has 500 pages? Here's an inside. He carries two now because they have to go together because he has so many stamps in there. But the visas, you know, you get visas that last Mm -hmm. like five years or something like Mm -hmm. the one to Brazil is for five years. So he has to cobble them together with rubber bands because he's run out of room for stamps and they... They'll only add so many pages. This is like trivia on passport stuff, but um, visas uh, visas and passports, they'll only put so many in one book before you have to go to a second book. But if you've got a visa in the old book, you got to keep it with you. <laughs> so, oh, yes, because the yeah. passport pages get used up before the visa runs out because he travels around so much. Because he's on the airplane so much. That's true. Wow, that's amazing. Well, everybody, you can get more at MontyRoberts.com and you can get Monty's calendar or have other questions answered by calling on a good old-fashioned telephone at 805-688-6288 and as Debbie said, you can get all the details from today's show, links to the guests, etc. at HorsemanshipRadio.com and we love to have feedback so you can find Monty on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Monty Roberts, yep. and you can follow him on Twitter if you're a tweeter. At <laughs> if you're Twitter you follow on Twitter if you're a tweeter, Twitter.com/slash Monty underscore Roberts. That's and right. Can, and now, many thanks to our sponsors because we couldn't do that without you, and you know that. So thank you very much, and be sure to visit all our other great shows on the Horse Radio Network. That's where Jen lives at www horseradionetwork.com. And until next time, have many happy horse hours. 